0: Welcome to the Green Ronin Publishing Podcast. Since the year 2000, Green Ronin has been at the forefront of the hobby game industry. This podcast brings that world to life with news, interviews, and opinions direct from the Emerald City. Join us as we talk about role-playing games, card games, conventions, game design, and all things Green Ronin. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Green Renine podcast. This episode is being recorded on Sunday, September 16th, 2007, and I'm your host, Chris Premis. I'm going to be bringing on a guest uh, in a little bit to talk about uh, goings-on in the industries, but first I'm going to give us a little bit of Green Renine news. Uh, As many of you know, we had a bunch of new products come out at Gen Con, and those have been winding their way through the distribution network and are showing up in stores now. The big news, uh, this week we finally saw the debut of the three new Freeport books. That's the Pirate's Guide to Freeport, the True 20 Freeport Companion, and Bleeding Edge special Dark Wings over Freeport. So those uh, are now widely available. In recent weeks, we've also released Hero High and A More Perfect Union for Mutants and Masterminds, and the long-awaited True 20 Narrators Kit for True 20 Adventure Roleplaying. So uh, all of those items are in stores now. You can also uh, buy them as PDFs on uh, our site or on any of the One Bookshelf sites. And we have even more stuff uh, coming up over the next few weeks, which uh, I'll talk about a little bit at the end of the show. So uh, I've got a guest here today. It is uh, Eric Mona from Paizo Publishing. Eric, welcome to our show.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Uh, Eric is the publisher at Paizo, uh, which means he's the man, as I understand.
1: That's right, and, and when Chris Premus says you're the man, it means you really are the man.
0: <laughs> that's punk rock talking. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I'm the
1: publisher. I manage our uh, editorial and art staff, and uh, set the schedule for the product lines that we do, and uh, just keep running the place uh, with my iron fist. Yeah, of course. Right. You gotta have an iron fist. And my and my silver Destro mask <laughs> that I like to wear
0: at work as well. <laughs> um, so I wanted to have Eric on the show uh, because he's another publisher who does a lot of D20 and OGL stuff. And uh, Gen Con saw some uh, some very interesting announcements uh, from Wizards of the Coast. And I thought people would appreciate uh, hearing the two of us have a conversation about that. So um, I'm sure that you suspected that 4th edition was in the works. Uh, you know, Most people did, I think. Um, Did you expect it to be announced at Gen Con? Um,
1: Yes, basically starting about a year out, I think we had a pretty good idea that that's where things were going to happen. Um, We had, for the five prior years, had an official license with Wizards of the Coast to produce Dragon and Dungeon magazine. And when that license came up for renewal, uh, Wizards of the Coast decided not to renew it. Um and we're not particularly forthcoming on the reasons why, other mm-hmm. than, you know, it was a strategic decision, had nothing to do with the quality of the magazines, et cetera, et cetera. And we still remain on very good terms with Wizards of the Coast, but the amount of information flow really changed about a year ago and it became very clear to us that something was, you know, in the offing and uh it didn't take much uh Prognosticating to come across what that might be. Yeah. Um, although I must say, the people at Wizards of the Coast themselves uh, were as tight-lipped about this thing as as humanly possible. And you know, there was you would expect there to be far more leaks and things in there. Where it wasn't really up until about two or three weeks before Gen Con where I knew for sure that that was what was going to happen. I mean, we had up until that point probably about two or three different iterations of product plans and things. You know, what do we do with this? What do we do with that? And uh, it pretty much came out the way we had anticipated that it was going to come out with an announcement of 4th edition. We were a little surprised. They announced that they would be releasing uh, the books in May, June, and July, and I think that that had not really entered into any of our models. We had sort of assumed that they would go (laughs) with what they'd done previously, which was to release the three core rulebooks at Gen Con. Um, And now it looks like they're going to be releasing them in the months in advance of Gen Con, going to release a Forgotten Realms campaign setting at Gen Con, and then use Gen Con as kind of a launching pad for their organized play through the RPGA, which I think is a really good idea, frankly. Um, I was one of a handful of people who designed and created the Living Greyhawk campaign for through the RPGA uh, at Wizards of the Coast, and we were there on day one uh, when the player's handbook was on sale at Gen Con, you know, the, the famous Freeport Gen Con. Uh, and uh, it was a mess because we had judges who were trying to run a game system that they had never seen before. And we had players trying to play a game system that they had never really seen before either. And uh, it was a, kind of a, a disaster. I mean, it was a beautiful disaster that ended up growing into the largest organized play uh, tabletop campaign in history. But... Um, It was a little crazy that first day, and so uh, I can see the advantage of putting out the books before then. And of course, now that I'm a publisher and understand things like printing bills and stuff like Mm -hmm. that, I can understand why they might want to space it out as well. But that element in particular came as a surprise.
0: That was a surprise to us as well. We had um, tentatively slotted the Song of Ice and Fire RPG for a June release next summer. Uh, And I did that in part because I figured if there was a fourth edition, it would come out at Gen Con. So, if we could get the Ice and Fire game out a couple of months f- first, you know, it would come out during this kind of fallow period between editions. Right. Um, and we might be able to get uh, a nice player base going before, you know, fourth edition hit. And now we have to reassess that because, you know, June now sounds like a terrible time to put that out. Because yeah, so it's, gonna be yeah right. <laughs> everyone's going to be buying the player's handbook. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's really interesting. And, and honestly, we're we're not even 100% set on what our plans are. Um, through August and, and of next year because uh, we haven't seen the fourth edition rules yet you know yeah. i'm not even sure that the fourth edition rules as a packet you know even exist i understand that there's some playtesting going on and uh, they they've just uh, from what i understand uh, reading headlines and things on the internet that they might have selected some rpga people to start the playtest but in terms of the other third party companies Producing stuff under the OGL, uh, we haven't seen anything. We've seen neither the rules nor the OGL, which makes it very difficult to make an informed decision about what our company will be doing. You know, in middle of two thousand eight, will we continue to be doing three point five, which obviously has been very successful for PISO and um, every one of our current customers are at least comfortable with that. You know, but then there's an issue of, you know, there's going to be a point of diminishing returns when no new players are coming into it. Yeah. You know, they're going to have to buy 4.0. And do we really want to be producing sort of a legacy product for a constantly shrinking audience of gamers? Uh, I I don't know. I mean, well, people
0: were asking me what our plans were like the first day of Gen Con. Right. And, you know, you mentioned before how the Wizards people were tight lipped. And that was also my experience where, you know, I know lots of people down there, but none of them said anything to me. Right. And so right. I had no, you know, I don't know. I didn't know what they're planning. You know, all the stuff I'm learning about the game, I'm learning by reading the internet like everybody else. Right. And so, you know, about all I can say is that we'll probably do a Freeport companion for 4th edition. That seems like kind of a no-brain thing to do. But other than that, we haven't formed a real strategy yet. And uh, I've already seen a couple of companies, you know, announce tentative strategies, and I, I don't see how you even could do that yet. I yeah, I mean... We've I seen mean... very little...
1: What and and what we've seen is, uh, yeah, I mean it's just some previews of some rules changes and things, which sound great to me, and then some previews of some flavor stuff, which is a thirty year gamer, uh-huh. s- kind of don't necessarily sound great to me. But I'm, you know, uh, the decision that we'll make ultimately is not well. Does Eric Mona think this is cool? It's <laughs> is this the right move for the company? You know, and that's it's always an interesting situation when you know the answer to those might be different. You know. Oh yeah. Well, and, we ran into
0: that when we did the Warhammer stuff for right, his workshop.
1: Right. So I don't, you know, I don't know, and I wish I did. I wish it wasn't so. I wish I could be able to say, look, this is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. We're very excited to support Wizards of the Coast' new game, um, but until we've seen the draft of the fourth edition rules and the the OGL, I think it would be irresponsible. For our customers and for our employees at Paizo to, to make a declaration of what we're going to do because we just don't know. Yeah. I mean, one thing we do know, which I think is really cool, is that Wizards plans to support the OGL. I mean, they, they certainly could have walked away from that. Um, I think there's some question as to whether that would be the right strategic move for them to make, but they, they were willing to see that third-party companies can help sort of ease the transition into the new game and can help support the game in ways that because of the size of Wizards of the Coast or because of their own strategy or product schedule, they won't be able to fill this, this niche or whatever. Um, and you know, companies like yours and mine will, will be able to do that a lot easier probably than they will, and uh, they seem to agree with that, and they seem to be working on an OGL, and it sounds to me like it will be perhaps even more permissive than the current OGL, but I just don't know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you and I were both at this meeting at Gen Con uh, for publishers. Well, it was for (laughs) publishers and whoever else wanted to Right, (laughs) right. And I had thought that was going to be the meeting where Wizards lets us know what is going on with the OGL and D20 for 4th edition and we showed up to that meeting and it turned out to be the wizard solicits our opinion on what we maybe think should go on. Right. Because they haven't formulated their plan.
1: Which I think on the one hand is really cool Mm -hmm. you know I mean I think it's I think we're seeing uh Wizards you know obviously they're very focused on perfecting 4th edition you know that's got to take up more than a 40 hour week for just about everybody working on that project I mean both Chris, both you and I were at Wizards of the Coast when 3rd Edition mm-hmm. was being created, and it was sort of this all-powerful project upon or before which everything else must bow, you know. Yeah. And um, so obviously how third-party companies fit into the mix is not their first priority. So given that, I was very pleased that they were solicitous of our feedback. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, it's like, wow, you know, they haven't really figured out fully what they want to do, yeah. you know. And so... Um, I think all of us are just hoping that, that they do kind of figure that out within the relatively near future so we can get going. You know, I, I don't know of very many D20, and I've talked to almost all of them. I don't know of very many D20 publishers who are like hoping fourth edition fails or mm-hmm. who, who, you know, are looking at this as a great opportunity to kind of own the 3.5 space and let wizards go off with 4.0 and, you know, screw them. It's not like that at all, at least not among yeah. the publishers I, that I've I want it. them
0: to succeed because. I want there to be a and d game out there that I want to play. Right. And for me, like, I haven't really played much 3.5 in the past few years because I became dissatisfied with the rules. Right. And so if they can make a better edition and be successful enough that companies like ours can also see some success off of that, that's, yeah. that's great well, for everybody. And, I
1: mean, there's, there's just because of the, you know, history and... uh the brand of d20 um and i'm getting a phone call here that's very professional your pants are in the yes uh, because of all that um uh, just a name drop that's downer artist kyle hunter calling oh, me very yeah. exciting um but anyway uh because of D D's position in the market and historically it really falls to Wizards of the Coast and the people working on Dungeons and Dragons to bring in the new 12 year olds and 13 year olds Mm -hmm. and and maybe even to kind of bring some of the folks who played D&D in the past back into the hobby. I'm not sure, you know, with all respect, I'm not sure that the Freeport book is going to do that or a Pathfinder, you know, campaign product that like what we're publishing. These are products that are really for the very experienced, uh, very engaged, D and D player essentially, you know, or D twenty player, yeah. and and I think it's in the whole industry's best interest that fourth edition D and D be a successful game, be a fun game, be a game that is still inherently, you know, D and D. And all of the previews that I've seen so far, um, with a couple of very nitpicky exceptions of things having to do with you know, whoa, no, the, the, uh, is now a succubus and it's a devil and stuff like that, you know, as the author of Hordes of the Abyss Mm -hmm. and for you guys, Armies of the Abyss and someone who's really been interested in how demons have fit into the D and D cosmology since, you know, since I was like an 11 year old, I get a little, oh, how dare they, you know, when it comes to that. But, you know, for a new player, that's going to make absolutely no difference whatsoever if they can simplify the game in a way that makes it more attractive to the next generation of gamers. I think we in the RPG and even the gaming industry as a whole, I think we all benefit. So, like I said, I mean, everybody wants this thing to be a success. And we're all just kind of waiting to see to what degree we will ride along with that success.
0: Well, and if it is successful... And that expands the role playing market. If you were a publisher of role playing games, or indeed a player of role playing games, right. you know it benefits you.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think that I think it's clear too that the the segment as a whole could use a shot in the arm at this point. You know, yeah. I mean, we are relatively deep in the edition cycle. Well, now we know we're at the end of the edition yeah. cycle for the most popular flagship. You know, game, and not just the most popular flagship game now, but the most popular flagship game in the '90s and in the '80s mm-hmm. and the '70s. I mean, the most popular RPG in the world um, uh, is been out for a good long time now, and they're not doing books about you know, hey, here's a bunch of neat tricks you can play with the fighter, or here's the first monster expansion with all the monsters you really want. I mean, they're on Monster Manual five, and they're mm-hmm. on, you know, um, they've been they've done a dozen hardcover books about how to optimize your character or what have you. And so the, the deeper you get into the edition cycle, the more rarefied the products get. And I think the less necessary the products get. And, um, I think that that's, that's true, not just for Wizards of the Coast, but for a lot of other companies too, who've been publishing for a very long time. So, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens when everybody sort of resets the, um, the ground rules and starts over essentially
0: i was looking through um the original eldritch wizardry book from right 1976 77. with the naked lady on the cover yeah <laughs> and uh i believe it <laughs> those was, are the days yeah the introduction to i think it was that book or maybe one of those other uh original dnd supplements where in the introduction uh it said well this basically completes the rules for dungeons and dragons right and so now we're done and, right you know and looking back on that, it's it's pretty funny. Yeah, please
1: buy Don't Give Up the Ship or Dawn <laughs> Patrol yeah. know, now that we're done with, uh, yeah, that's right. with D&D.
0: <laughs> well, so one of the things that was talked about at that meeting was um, the D20 logo as a brand. Right. Um, and how you know it was widely perceived that that brand was damaged. And Wizards says they're going to create a new D20 logo for 4th edition. Um, in part, so you'll be able to tell at a glance you know what products go with the new edition, right, um, but I think also in part because they desire uh a d twenty logo that is more meaningful than it currently is now. now I've noticed that you guys have these new thirty two page adventures that don't have the d twenty logo in the middle,
1: right, the game mastery modules yeah. is what we call them that for for a long time while we were producing Dragon and Dungeon. We, you know, we're all gamers, and we all have uh, different campaigns and different ideas things that didn't fit sort of strictly within the Dragon and Dungeon Magazine paradigm, and so we created a brand called Game Mastery that was meant to sell accessories, essentially, to gamers, and... Um, it didn't take long for us to realize, you know, hey, uh, a module or an adventure is really kind of an accessory right. for, for gamers too, so let's do that. And and it just so happened that that coincided with the ending of our license, more or less, uh, to do Dungeon Magazine, which has been extraordinarily popular. We've gotten, you know, dozens and dozens of top-rate freelancers working on that, and that that we have a relationship with, and all these people have lots of stories they want to tell, you know, and we have lots of of ideas of things we wanted to publish, so we we introduced in June of this year, right before Origins, the Game Mastery Module series, and uh, part of the decision, you know, to go into that was what are we going to do as far as branding. Do we brand this as an OGL module? Do we brand this as a D20 module? what do we do and through a lot of conversations with retailers and uh, distributors it became pretty clear to me that the d20 logo which i think started as just sort of a hey look at this neat red symbol this shows you that the, the thing is compatible with D D, um because of the, the the massive amount of product that retailers got stuck with after 3.5 came out and all of a sudden all this 3.0 product was dead um, and because of the, frankly, very widely divergent quality of products with the D20 logo on it, especially in the first couple of years of the license, yeah. when a lot of old cockroaches came out of old <laughs> holes to try to uh, sell as many products as there were they new possibly could. Too. There were new cockroaches as well. Um, but... Uh, the effect of that was that retailers just started saying, you know what, we, we don't really want more D20. Our D20 section is full. Mm-hmm. And I think that Green Arneen really kind of led the way to some degree or another with uh, Mutants and Masterminds. Because here was a game that was essentially based on the D20 system, but it was based on the OGL. right? And so it didn't have the, the logo. It could include things like character creation and what have you. So the OGL was really like all of the benefits of the D20 license with none of the sort of weird restrictions about using the license or about using the logo, right. rather. And so we just dumped it, and it uh, near as I can tell makes no difference to our sales. It probably helped our sales.
0: When we started the Mutants of Masterminds project, it was our intention to uh, put the D20 logo on it because at the time we felt like it had to have it on mm-hmm. it. Um, and then as the design went on, um, I started thinking, you know, this is not something that you really are gonna need a player's handbook to play. Right. So, you know, do we really need that bug? And, you know, in retrospect, no, not at all.
1: Yeah. Certainly hasn't hurt the sales of Mutants and Masterminds.
0: No, no, not at all. Although, of course, even, you know, M&M, we've developed as its own brand, as its own game system. Right. You know, it's pretty far from... from Well, yeah, even in the
1: beginning, you know, I mean, what, a lot of, listeners probably don't know, but I uh, was one of the editors on the first game, the Mutants and Masterminds game, and even from the very beginning, it was pretty clear that this was something altogether different. I mean, it was based on the OGL, but it wouldn't even be that difficult, in my view, um, somewhere down the road, for you guys to do a new edition of Mutants and Masterminds that takes all the stuff that was new and sort of uniquely Mutants and Masterminds and keeps that, but even jettisons some of the stuff that came from the OGL, and you'd have your own game.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so. well, I mean, we basically, you know, we treat it like its own game, and, um, you know, and in the wake of the fourth edition announcement, some people were saying, oh, is this going to affect Mutants and Masterminds? Yeah. And we said, well, no. I mean, whatever Wizards does to make D&D better at handling dungeon crawls, I mean, that's not going to uh, mean that we have to do a new edition of Mutants right, and Masterminds right, right away. I you know, think it's so. interesting, too,
1: because I think every time Steve and I, in that first edition, tried to make the game more like D&D. Mm-hmm. I think it that was not always the best decision, you know, and yeah. so going forward with the new edition that you guys have done, I know it's kind of gone even a little bit more in its own way, and I think that that's smart. You know, it's interesting, like, what you know, does making the game have a lot of similarities to the, the industry leader game, D&D, you know, make it easier for people to sort of say, oh, I'll give this a try, and I think it probably did.
0: So, uh, I think with the game that we have that takes more cues is true 20 and mm-hmm. it's something that's more easy for you know if you've come from D and D, true 20 is easy to pick up right but even that i mean you know we're not considering doing a new edition of true 20 right now. Right. well
1: there's you know you don't need to right. essentially yeah we'll see what fourth edition looks like i mean it could be very different and uh um you know just to bring it back to the first question yeah know, i think we're all we're all eager to see Fourth Edition and see what what uh, what changes that will bring for the whole industry.
0: Yes, I I I think that's fair to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now you guys are doing the Pathfinder stuff, right? Um, I know you had gotten that into, I believe, six month cycles with the yeah story. six month cycles. So uh, does that mean there's going to be a cycle like in the midst of when Fourth Edition? Comes th- out?
1: Yes, actually, there will be the third. Um, adventure path Mm -hmm. let me let me start at the very beginning what pathfinder is is um when we found out we weren't going to be doing the the magazines anymore we looked at sort of what our um what we were best at as a company Mm -hmm. as a design house and by far the most popular feature that we ever introduced into the magazines and it was a paizo innovation was the concept of the adventure path you know a series of the linked adventures there had been a uh series of very loosely tied adventures coming out in the early days of first edition, or sorry, third edition, called The Sunless Citadel and Forge of Fury and things. But you have to work pretty hard to build connections between those adventures, and even by the end it's like, wait, so why do we play those two adventures? You know, so um, kind of Basing it off of that idea and off of some of the ideas from first edition, with the Queen of the Spiders and the Slave Lords Adventures and things like that, we uh, we started with uh, adventure paths, and the first one was the Shackled City Adventure Path. Uh, the second one was Age of Worms Adventure Path, and then the third was Savage Tide Adventure Path, which is only just concluded. Um, all three of those appeared within the pages of Dungeon Magazine, and they were by far the most popular things we ever did. Uh, It changed the way that people interacted with Dungeon Magazine. It boosted the hell out of the subscriptions of Dungeon Magazine and and helped the circulation of the magazine. But one observation that I made, I believe it was at Origins about three years ago, is we were nearing the end of the the Shackled City, the very first adventure path. And unlike previous years, all kinds of people came up to the booth at Pi- the Pizza Booth and wanted to tell us about oh such and such a thing happened. You'll never believe what happened in our Shackled City campaign, or Shackled City campaign, or Shackled City campaign, just again and again and again. And I thought that was really interesting and really exciting because prior to that my expectation of how people treated Dungeon was when a new issue arrived, they would read it mm-hmm. and get inspired by it and then put it on their shelf. And next time they needed a seventh level swamp adventure They would look through their whole archive and say, oh, yeah, there's that one from issue number 50 or whatever and pull that out. Um, I think the Adventure Pass really changed things. I think they really sort of had people playing the adventures right out of the magazine in a way that they would not previously done, at least not to such a degree. Obviously, there have always been people who played it right as they got it, but I think the Adventure Pass really changed things. And so as all these various people would come up to me at Origins and say, hey, you know, this and and that happened in my campaign, I'd say, oh, what about, you know... This other adventure that we published—did you get that? And again and again and again, these people would say, "Oh no, no, no! I only buy the ones with the adventure path." Mm. You know? And so, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, "Okay." So for Age of Worms, now what we're going to do is we're going to put in every issue. Yeah. You know, I don't want to give people the option of waiting, you know, a few issues in a row. So, um, so starting with Age of Worms, we started doing them every month. And honestly, when we sat down to when James Jacobs and other members of the staff sat down to plan out Age of Worms. I was really nervous about presenting the idea that we were going to do a linked adventure sequentially every month for a year. Because as you probably know, that actually takes a lot of coordination between freelancers and artists and things like that. Um, And not only
0: that, but normally when you do linked adventures and sell them separately, your sales degrade. Right. You know, throughout right. you know we sold way more of Death in Freeport than Madness in Freeport. Right. And it's hard to do in a traditional model. Mm-hmm. You know, people would sometimes say, Oh, you should do like eight modules in a row. And right. I was trying to imagine what would the sales of the eighth module right. be. Right. Like. Well and as it
1: turns out, we weren't totally immune from that. I mean mm-hmm. the sales of the the final installments of the various adventure paths would generally be lower than the sales at the beginning. Um, I think that's only natural. I think a lot of people will start the campaign, but for whatever reason not are not able to complete it. I think that people start the campaign and we pack so much information into these campaigns that it's very hard to keep up you know with oh, you know, thank God, the new dungeons here because I need that adventure today. you know, they might still be too episodes oh, yeah. back. And so by the time that last one comes out, you know, some of the people have already wa- have already walked away from the campaign. Some of the people have not quite caught up to that point, you know, or what have you. So um, I think we were a little protected from that because it was a monthly periodical and because, frankly, in Dungeon you would get two other adventures and a bunch of other content as well. Right. Um, but, you know, even even Dungeon was not immune from that. And so one of the things that we've done now with uh, Pathfinder is we're only taking the adventures up to 15, um, 15th level, mm-hmm. or thereabouts, because you know now that Wizards has announced 4th edition, I think we can all say publicly 3rd edition, 3.5, doesn't really work that well above 15th level yeah. um, a lot of the spells get very, very complex the characters almost become super heroic in the amount of abilities that they have your, your warriors are having so many attacks that it's difficult to keep track of
0: I don't think D&D has ever worked well at high level, and you know, right. when I in any edition, I preferred to play You know, low to mid levels. Yeah, well, they talk a lot about
1: the sweet spot, you know, what is the sweet spot, and it's a little bit different for most, you know, for everybody, but, you know, certainly like 6th and 7th and 8th level is in just about everybody's sweet spot, and just about nobody's sweet spot includes 1st level, and almost nobody's sweet (laughs) spot includes anything above 15, particularly in 3rd edition. One of the things Wizards has been saying is, you know, we're going to make, they're doing First through thirtieth level, you know, and they say we're going to make every level the sweet spot. It's you know, and in which case it's going to be the sweetest RPG of all time, uh-huh. you know. So I am eagerly awaiting what tricks they've got up their sleeves to make that so there's no sort of dead spots in the in the rules. But in any event, there clearly are in 3.5, and yeah. so the further you get into the higher levels, um, the tougher it is. And and frankly, the tougher it is to fit an adventure. Within the same number of pages as all of its predecessors, because the stat blocks just grow oh, yeah. to be titanic. The amount of advice you need to give the DM to run a, a particularly complex encounter can get staggering uh, in its girth, and s- you could not publish a really good twentieth-level adventure, you know, in
0: thirty-two pages. It's also possible that someone's weird combo character is going to break the adventure. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you, you know, you can plan. You always have to plan for, um, for what your particular group is when you're running something. Right. When you're writing, of course, it's harder because you have to try to guess, you know, well, on average, you know, what is each group going to have? And the more options there are on the table, then the harder yeah. that gets.
1: Yeah. So when, we, uh, when the magazines uh, came to an end, we said, what, you know, what are we good at? What do people like from Paizo? And, mm-hmm. and the obvious answer was the adventure paths. And so we came up with an idea to do a monthly adventure path product. Uh, and you know we're calling it a book because it's not doesn't feel like a magazine. It feels like a soft cover, full color book. Um, and we're not selling it on newsstands. We're selling it on the bookstands. So we're not going to deal with a lot of the complexities of the magazine business anymore, right. which is fine with me. <laughs> and uh, we've been selling a lot of them through subscription models. Um, we allowed uh, existing subscribers of Dungeon and Dragon magazine to choose four different options of, you know, this was on day one when we announced that the magazines would come to an end. We said, here's, well, you know, here's all this money you've given us. Here's four things you can do with it. You can uh, just get a refund, you know, straight up. We'll send you a check. You can buy some stuff on paizo.com, which is, one of the leading internet uh, hobby retail stores online um, at a significant discount as a way of saying thanks for being a subscriber. Um, you could just flop out or trade out one for one uh, back issues. So if you want to shore up your back issue collection, maybe you know now that there is an end point in printed Dungeon and Dragon magazines, it becomes a little bit more reasonable to say, I'm going to collect them all. Yeah. You know, So instead of future issues, you could trade those in for back issues that you might want to complete your collection. Or you could trade it in for a very reasonable swap uh, for Pathfinder issues. So we've got an enormous number of uh, people who have decided to give us a try and see what Pathfinder's like. Uh, the first uh, volume came out at this year's Gen Con, and uh, was very, very, very popular. Uh, it was uh, sold more than we had expected. We had a special limited edition cover as well just for Gen Con, and people seemed really excited about that. Um but yeah, uh, it's so that'll be in six six month installments. So we'll churn through them in two a year. Um, and the reason why we've it, we've sped it up the old way we did it was twelve adventures over one year in Dungeon. Um, we wanted to give people more jumping on points. So uh, the adventures in Pathfinder are longer than the adventures had been mm-hmm. in Dungeon. It's a ninety six page book, uh, and about fifty to sixty pages are the adventure, and the rest of it is supplementary material, new monsters background articles, you know, we've got a whole new Pantheon of Gods, so we're showing off some of those in in support articles and things. Um, And, yeah, in uh, February, we'll launch a new Adventure Path, and uh, that will go up through July, Mm. and then in August, we'll launch a new Adventure Path. So, while the the 4.0 books are coming out, people will be concluding the second Adventure Path, which is called Curse of the Crimson Throne, and it's uh, going to be really awesome and really interesting. It's uh, a little bit more sort of city-based than the first adventure path, which is called Rise of the Rune Lords. Um, and uh, we're hoping that uh, people use Curse of the Crimson Throne as kind of the, the great hurrah for 3.5, and mm. that that's their, their final adventure.
0: Well, the last few issues will give you some interesting data points yeah
1: i mean it's going to be interesting to see you know and then of course again i have to say we haven't seen fourth edition you know i suppose there's a chance that the third adventure path will be 3.5 as well Mm -hmm. you know uh, i kind of hope not you know i think we're all hoping that maybe that fourth edition will be something we will a want to uh support and then be be able to support in the manner that we want to support it and if that happens then you know it's it's Likely that the the third Adventure Path launching in August at the Gen Con um, where you'll finally have all three of your core rulebooks, you'll be able to go right into the new campaign. I mean, one thing that's absolutely certain, every D&D player who wishes to maintain, you know, being an active D&D player is going to be looking for a new campaign Mm -hmm. around August of next year, and we're more than happy to provide that.
0: Yes. Well, we did the Bleeding Edge series of D20 Mm -hmm. adventures, and um we tried to keep them generic enough that you could slot them into whatever particular world you're using right in the in the way that the old you know giants modules and those sorts of things were um and to make them so that you could link them together have a story but that it wasn't such a strong story that you couldn't disentangle them you know right but that was a you know it was kind of a hard tightrope to walk yeah with those things um and, uh, and, you know, some people who bought them, they really liked the fact that they could just sort of, oh, I need an adventure for a third level, I'll take this one. Right. But other people, like, they wanted more story, you know, more along the lines right. of what you guys have done with uh, Pathfinder stuff.
1: Well, and we're trying to kind of have our cake and eat it, too, because yeah. on the one hand we're doing Pathfinder, which, although each of the Pathfinder installments does play on its own as its own adventure, um, there really are a lot of very close links between the adventures, and it really is a campaign. Yeah. Whereas the game mastery modules, which we continue to produce at, at a rate of one a month, um, those are jump all over the place. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they're different levels, they're different subject matter. Um, they're really like the non-adventure path adventures in dungeon. You're not right. ever really sure what you're going to get, um, and there's a sort of excitement about that because it could be anything. You know, I mean, we we are also using it as an opportunity to jump around the map of the world that we're using as a background for all this stuff. Now, uh, like you guys, we're trying to make this stuff as adaptable as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. So you know, the, the assumptions that we, we make going into a Pathfinder or into a Game Mastery module are the same fundamental assumptions that we made with Dungeon, which is that we can assume that people have the Player's Handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide, and the Monster Manual. Anything beyond that, we need to kind of explain right. you know, what the additional rules are. And so um, we have placed all this stuff into uh, a world, which is called uh, Galarian and we will be developing that you know later Uh, but right now it's kind of just a rough map and so we at Paizo know okay well there's sort of viking type guys up here and there's jungle type stuff down here and there's a crazy country in the thrall of a reign of terror kind of revolution thing going on here and you know we've got all these other sort of areas that we figure a lot of DMs might be interested in and then with Pathfinder all of the events take place in this kingdom called Varicia and you get a lot of detail about that area. Mm-hmm. But with the little adventures, the Game Master modules, we jump all around, you know, I mean one of the next ones that we're sending to the printer takes place in kind of a fantasy Egypt kind of a place with pyramids and all that. That's very, very different than the style that we're doing in Pathfinder, and I wouldn't want to lock our thousands of Pathfinder customers into an Egyptian style campaign because yeah. that's a little bit more of a niche. But Although um, if
0: you want an Egyptian style campaign, you should get you would you could get Hamanoptra. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, from Adventures. Green Ronin Games
1: Publishing. It would be it would be an excellent match yeah. with that module. And you know, um, it re- you know it remains to be seen what kind of audience there. I mean, you probably have a better idea than I do. What kind of audience there is for people who want that kind of fantasy Egypt thing? We thought, you know. Uh, we like that kind of stuff. Yeah. We think it'll be popular. Let's give it a shot. And we couldn't do that within the context of Pathfinder. So the Game Mastery modules really allow us to test stuff out. And I'll, you know, I'm here to tell you, if, we, if it's popular, we might do more along that vein. You know, And if, like, uh, one of the things that I've been obsessed with of late is science fantasy and... You know John Carter of Mars and all that kind of stuff and so there is in our campaign setting a red planet and a green planet that you can see from the world and we will eventually set some modules on those worlds Mm -hmm. and so you know we'll do an adventure at some point called journey to the red planet or something where you have a very you know John Carter style sword and planet adventure and if we sell as many or more of that adventure than your standard sort of, hey, there's goblins in that there castle kind of adventure, we'll do more. We might even do a source book or what have you. You know. So we're using the uh, game mastery modules as kind of a test uh, for a lot of sort of off-the-wall ideas that we have within the context of fantasy and OGL gaming.
0: Whereas the Pathfinder stuff is gonna develop one area. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean that's that and we know the whole thing from you know, from the, the the date that we send the the first module request to the first freelancer, we know what happens in the sixth adventure. Right. You know, we've got long multi page outlines for every single installment and uh, it's almost like a big, huge project. And we know that the majority of D and D players are very comfortable with uh, you know, a campaign in which elves are elves and dwarves are dwarves and barbarians are barbarians. Mm-hmm. And so we're not really trying to kind of test the limits of fantasy as a genre within the context of Pathfinder. We're trying to provide people with really great campaigns using the same genre assumptions that the core rules have. When
0: well, uh when I was working at Wizards, or I guess when we were working at Wizards, yeah. Um, I was on the Greyhawk team for a while. Right. And uh, that was during the second edition relaunch right. era. And there was a point where we developed a, a plan um, for further Greyhawk stuff, uh, none of which ever happened. But Of course,
1: uh, <laughs> it being Greyhawk
0: stuff. Yes, it being Greyhawk stuff. But we had had this, uh, we put together this plan uh, where basically we would do some books that would start on a very local level. And then as the series went on, it would telescope out. And so, you know, the first book would be about, like, a city. Right. You know? And then the next book would be about, like, the duchy and then the kingdom. and right. You know, and so you could do a campaign where the players and the characters were exploring their settings, starting at a very local level right. and then expanding out.
1: Incidentally, I mean, that is exactly the framework we use for the Age of Worms adventure path, mm-hmm. which is w- we started them in a little town called Diamond Lake, in in Greyhawk, as it happens. Um, and we basically said, look, unless you have a really great reason tied to your background to your character, make your character from Diamond Lake. You know, this is their hometown. And in that way, when people went to the city of Greyhawk, as they did three adventures later, I didn't have to provide the entire overview of everything you ever needed to know about the city of Greyhawk. I mean, the assumption was that the the players and the characters were coming to this fantastic city for the first time and so it's okay if there wasn't an answer for every single little question yes. um, because everybody to some degree is in the dark and because Greyhawk uh, as a setting has had such a um, uh, storied, history. storied history right there's never really been even going back to the very beginning there's never really been an, uh, an attempt to say okay how are we going to make people sort of fall in love with this setting how are we going to what is the Path by which people discover this campaign setting—that's not really been a major design goal for any, you know, for anybody related to Greg, except maybe these meetings you were in in 1998 that never came to fruition, right? But you know, that's how you reveal stuff to people—you start small and then you you keep revealing it. Uh, ironically, since we're talking about Greyhawk, it reminds me of a chapter of uh, one of Gary Gygax's independently published RPG books that he did after leaving. A wizard, or a TSR. One of them was called, uh, you know, mastering the game, and the oh, other one yeah. was like the the, the dungeon master. Or something I, I can't remember exactly the title, and might come to me later. But he talked a lot about his own sort of design philosophy, which he called sort of the bullseye method of design. So if you look at the at the the map of the world of Greyhawk, at the very center of the map is the city of Greyhawk, and that area and the area immediately surrounding it are quite detailed. Yeah, you, know, you can find maps and several products. You can find maps of the city, you can find maps of the environs, you can find all kinds of adventures that are set there, etc. And if you, one of the other things that I think is, is actually quite ingenious about uh, the Greyhawk map is that within that first bullseye there's virtually every single terrain type. So it's somewhat unusual that the city of Greyhawk is located next to this desert and yeah. there's a jungle and all that, right? But he was trying to give you an opportunity to adventure in all these different Environments without going too far from home. And I think that's, you know, to some degree, I think that's laudable. So then you go one ring out on the bullseye and you get, you know, a fair amount of details. And within the context of Greyhawk, that's stuff like Firiandi and Ernst and what have you. And then you go another rung out and it's like, okay, now we're in Keeland and the Great Kingdom. I've got some idea of what's out there, but, you know, it's really open for me to design myself. And then you go another ring out and you've got stuff like Hepmona Land, the Medio Jungle, the Philandrian Peninsula with the, uh, the Vikings and uh, the the Backlunish sort of Arabic Persian lands, which are very much a mystery. And so I think that when you're looking at how to build a campaign setting as well as how, when you're looking at how to build a campaign, you can use that bullseye method to kind of figure out where you should focus your attention and what the kind of information you need for each of those rungs of the bullseye.
0: That's basically the approach we've taken with the new Freeport book, the mm-hmm. Pirate's Guide to Freeport. I mean, Freeport was always meant as a something that you could drop into any setting you were working with. So, you know, it could be dropped into the Pathfinder setting or... And probably could, will be. Mm, uh, <laughs> people have used it all, all different sorts of ways. Um, the new book does something that we haven't done on Freeport before, which is sort of to, to have a chapter dedicated to that next rung, which is the continent. And for the first time, Uh, I actually designed out, you know, this continent we talk about all the time very generic terms. If you don't have one that's suitable, here's one, you know? Um, And I certainly had the Greyhawk uh, folio in mind when I was designing that, um, where you're going to have, you know, a page or two of information about each kingdom. Right. um, And and to leave enough blanks in there for people to fill stuff in and just have fun with. Um,
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's... You know, Greyhawk is sort of the setting that will never die, you know, (laughs) uh, despite the best intentions of a lot of the people who have been managing it, right? Um, Greyhawk, I think by its very nature, does not answer all of the questions. Uh You know, it says, okay, beyond that first bullseye, it's really your world, you know? I mean, we'll give you some framework and things like that, but even the Living Greyhawk Gazetteer, which is a product that I worked on um, when I was at Wizards of the Coast, which pulled every single piece of information from, you know, the introduction to Lost Caverns of Sajkanth all the way to, you know, some novels and things like that and tried to smoosh it all into one big historical tapestry. Even that, there's only about a page on each kingdom. Mm-hmm. And not by no means are all the questions answered. And so Greyhawk is not really a setting about answering every single question. It's about posing interesting questions that lead to interesting adventures and ultimately it's about the DM making it his own campaign setting and I think that that's where other campaign settings sort of fall short I mean I'm not I've written a couple of the books for the Forgotten Realms but I've and i played in a lot of Forgotten Realms games, but I'm not a Forgotten Realms DM, and one of the reasons that I, I never took that plunge is that my assumption going in was that I was going to need dozens and dozens of books, and, you know, every single piece of history has been charted out from the beginning of time all the way <laughs> to even the future, yeah. you know, and it does seem and it's the, it's the story fundamentally of other people's characters. Yeah. And Greyhawk, to me, has always seemed like it's the story about my characters and about my campaign. And I'm sure there's, you know, th- thousands of... Forgotten Realms fans out there going no that Mona's <laughs> an idiot you know burning their copies of Fates and Pantheons or whatever but uh, but that's you know that's not I'm not the only guy with that assumption there's a lot of people with that assumption
0: which is interesting because Greyhawk has its own characters like Auteluke and Nystel and so on that right. came out of Gygax's early campaign right but you never got the feeling that you know well if I don't need to take this adventure because you know right. Tensor's going Tensor show will go up and, I mean and, and,
1: and, and with very very few exceptions and Tensor being one of them, actually, um, almost all those characters are not good guys they 're mm-hmm. neutral i mean the 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 main group of Greyhawk is the circle of eight, you know these wizards, Morton Kanan and Big B, and all those people they 're not really your friends you know're they not they might be helping some evil dude you know to keep the balance or whatever yeah. they think their idea of neutrality is and I like that a lot you know the oh who 's the hero of the Greyhawk campaign you know of the established nPCs well, is it Morton Kanan? Well, sure, but is Morton Kanan a hero or is he kind of a megalomaniacal wizard who thinks he understands what is balance and is going to sort of tip the scales in various uh, different geopolitical events to get his way, you know? Um, that doesn't. That's not really a good guy, you know. And that's good because the good guys are you. Yeah. You, the, the 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 players are the good guys. And in
0: fact, you probably don't want to arouse their interest, right? Like right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And that's the idea, you know. It's like, oh, hey,
1: uh, is here at the party. Oh, awesome! You know, we're in for for a bunch of uh, awesome, great, f- weird food and a bunch of sex stories. You know. <laughs> uh, oh, Morden Kanan's here. Oh, crap! You know, what did I do wrong?
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I tell you what. What drew me into Greyhawk way back when was actually those maps. The. Uh huh poster maps that came with the folio that, uh, I think it was Darlene did those, yeah, Darlene. were awesome. Yeah. And uh, in fact, many, many years later, there was this Italian company that was making miniaturized versions of the first edition product, and I bought the, the Greyhawk box set miniature version 'cause I was like, oh, if it has those maps but you know, like right. three inches. And tall, it does. Awesome, yeah. It and it does. does. And and it has a
1: little books and everything. I yeah. love those things. Um, and I, I have one on my desk at work at the Greyhawk box set. And it's funny because there were several times when because of something to do with Dungeon or Dragon where I would want to oh, you know, what's the capital of this country? Well, I pretty much have those memorized, but you know what what's the river named that goes through this 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 country? I can just whip that thing out, unfold it like a brochure, you know, and it's right there. I don't need to dig through my old boxes and stuff. So, yeah, I I had that thing, too, and I I loved it. So right now I am working with uh, Jason Bullman, our lead designer uh, at Paizo, on the Pathfinder Chronicles campaign setting, um, which will first debut in a book called um, Pathfinder Chronicles Gazetteer in uh, January of next year and it's a rules light, you know, book that ought to be able to bridge the editions fairly well, but it gives an overview in 64 pages of the whole campaign setting. So again, that's, you know, three four paragraphs of country we're not talking about an encyclopedia here, but we are talking about providing a broad strokes overview of a couple of continents that people can use in their own campaigns and that we will be using for Pathfinder and for Game Mastery Modules and you know I'm taking a lot of inspiration obviously from the campaign settings that I have experienced with in the past and Greyhawk's one of them so it's fun to kind of take some key thematic elements you know from Greyhawk and work them into this but then also make it something that's wholly unique and that it's its own beast so um, creating campaigns is fun.
0: It is fun, actually. When I sat down to, to do that chapter in the Freeport book, where it was like, "Well, what's the continent going to be like?" Right. You know, um, it was uh, it was probably the most entertaining stuff I had done. Yeah, yeah, it's
1: it is it's it's a hell of a lot more fun than mm-hmm. paying contracts and all that. So.
0: <laughs> and doing that Freeport book um, systemless, the way that we did it, you know, was like when we were doing the design of the book, we just didn't have to worry about the mechanic stuff right away. Right, it's like, well, let's just make a cool setting. Right, which is
1: interesting because. A lot of times you'll you'll be, oh, and it'd be so cool if this could happen, and then it's like, wait, but it can't be that way because the rules don't yeah. quite work in that way. It must have been pretty liberating to say, you know what, screw the rules. This is a setting for a bunch of different camp- a bunch of different rule sets. We'll deal with that in the companion books or what have you. Yes, the companion books.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, certainly the first day of Gen Con this year when the Pirates got to Freeport was finally going to debut, um, and then the same day they announced 4th edition, It's like wow! I really feel like I made the right choice with this book. Yeah, if I was debuting this today as a three point five book, I would swallow a shotgun. (laughs) Right,
1: right, right. Mm. Well, it's funny, you know, we up until Gen Con, uh, in some of the Pathfinder promotion thing. I mean, as a lot of the listeners probably know, when the it was announced publicly that the magazines were going to be going away in printed form, there was a. Fair amount of gnashing of teeth, you know, among the, there the was audience, backlash, yeah. and yeah. people were were um, quite frustrated and quite upset. And and at the same time, we debuted Pathfinder, which people were really really excited about. And so, very briefly, I, I, in some of the promotional material that we were saying about Pathfinder, I would say stuff like, "Oh, you know," and Pathfinder is the biggest RPG story of two thousand seven. Well, that lasted until about the the second day of Gen Con uh-huh. uh, when uh-huh. uh, when uh, the folks over at Wizards had giant actual three-dimensional beholders and trolls <laughs> and media there and a and the big multimedia presentation so it was the biggest RPG story from April to late July mid-August of 2007 as Pathfinder and boy it was a proud time
0: well, but, you know, you probably got a lot of attention during that period, We did, so. actually. I
1: mean, we're thrilled with it. People, people have been very supportive, and, and now that the first volume is out, uh, it's, it's unusual to think, but it's also really great to think that there are people playing, you know, The Rise of the Rune Lords Adventure Path right now. You know, somewhere out there, people are playing this thing that we've yeah. been working on so hard for about a year now, um, and, and, and the ball is well and truly rolling, and uh, it's very exciting.
0: We should probably mention that uh, we're gonna be providing true 20 stats for the Pathfinder
1: yeah branches. absolutely that's one of the the cool things um, of kind of being our own masters at this point is we can do stuff like that mm-hmm. where uh, you know we we provide the framework and the story and the you know the way of getting the books to the to the consumer and uh, we're working with a couple of different companies on you know hey let's let's do conversion guides you know for some of these other games so that way um, if somebody wants a whole campaign for True Twenty, you know, they can by going to our site, going to your site, getting the, the conversion guidelines or whatever, they can they can get that going. We should have that rolling relatively rapidly. We're also talking to the guys over at uh, Troll Lord who do Castles and Crusades. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's a growing fan base, you know, of that and those guys. In many ways, their sort of first edition sympathies match up. Very similar to my own, and yeah. to James Jacobs, the editor in chief of, of, Pathfinder. So here we're doing, uh, uh, essentially, a, you know, D and D, campaign that hits a lot of the classic touchstones. Um, it's unfortunate that other people who feel the same way about those classic touchstones, maybe they just don't love three point five. Yeah. You know, they they've got their own game. We want to give them an opportunity to jump on board too. So it's well, it's nice exciting. for us
0: because the I mean, for sort of the nature of True Twenty is that it's good for many genres right so if we do an adventure that's just you know it's just fantasy that immediately is going to cut off you know a substantial segment of people who are currently playing true Twin, who are using it for sci-fi or modern day games or whatever so it's nice because it puts more adventure material out there uh without us having to uh publish it yeah
1: yeah and you know um it's an interesting industry where you know competitors are all pretty friendly in general and mm-hmm. and uh i think there's a sense that like the more quality rpg product there is out there sort of the more everybody's boats get raised by the you know the rising tide so um we're, we're thrilled to be working with other folks we're also working with a couple of um uh computerized online resources like uh lone wolf's um uh lab yes uh, they, they'll be doing data sets for the Pathfinder campaign and RPG Explorer also mm-hmm. will be doing data sets for uh, for our adventures and things so that's really exciting yeah, that's an area where PISO, you know we've got the retail store and we've got the we've got the RPG products and we've got board games and now we're doing novels but one thing we don't really do is the the computerized uh, GM resources and so there the amount of innovation that there's been in that segment of our business in the last few years has been really exciting, and, and we're pleased to be participating in that.
0: Yeah, we're working with Hero Lab as well. They're currently um, moving into the playtest phase for the Mutants and Masterminds plugin. For yeah, that neat. Which will be, yeah, it'll be great because it'll finally give us a, a nice uh, computer generator for doing characters and things right, like that. Right. So it's. Uh, very cool to uh, have something like that in the offing because the M M&M and M fans have been asking for that. Absolutely, since. and there's a game that can really benefit from that you oh, know, with indeed. all the different powers and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so with the Pathfinder stuff, you're doing the subscription model, right? Um, have you gotten blowback from the retailers about that?
1: Not really. No? You know, I mean, we're we're doing the the subscriptions um, as kind of a offshoot of the Dragon and Dungeon subscriptions, right. and so that they. You know there's always been that understanding that you know with a product like this there's going to be some subscribers Um, some I'm sure some folks weren't really that pleased but we're doing a lot of other stuff you know that is sort of unique to retailers. We we participate in the free RPG day, uh-huh. um, and uh, you you know that the only place you can't get those products through distribution, so you can only get them through the the game stores. We're doing um, we're really looking forward actually this year to, to introducing some more retailer focused uh, demo programs and um, maybe some exclusive products and things like that. So uh, we've got we've got a very good relationship with the retailers and uh hasn't really been a huge problem today
0: i i mean i i was intrigued by the model because it would sure be nice to know like when we print right how many adventure of this right you know like we're guaranteed to sell this many because Mm -hmm. we already have in fact sold that many uh but then i thought about the logistics of of trying to get a program like that up and running and selling it to the retailers um, and you know, we don't have the legacy of, well, we were a magazine right, publisher right, and you know. right,
1: right. Well, yeah. And, and as, as far as the, you know, the back end a lot of that stuff was in place with the magazines. And so it was a much easier transition for us than if we had just said, Oh, yeah, you, know, you know, know how do we do this from scratch? Now we did do some of it, some of the programming stuff from scratch. And, um, that was, uh, an interesting struggle <laughs> that we were working on until the very day that we announced it. But, um, but yeah, um, yeah. We you know we sell a num- a large number of our products through the retail chain. We have what I like to think is a really good relationship with retailers. You know we we always try to say you know you can get this at your local game store yeah. that kind of stuff. It's obviously the retail chain um, is probably the most important thing for the industry. If there's no retailers, there's really no way for a hobbyist to. Go from, you know, sort of the the product like Dungeons and Dragons or Warhammer or something that gets them in to the industry as a whole, you know, there need to be game stores in order for them to say, hey, look, this other company is doing some pretty cool stuff, too. Yeah. Oh,
0: so. definitely, which is why the number of game store closings over the past few years has been worrisome. And, yeah. you know, hopefully what we'll end up with is the core of strong goods stores, right. you know, that will really support the hobby. Um, but uh, certainly, you know, the advent of Internet sales and all that sort right of right stuff in the PS PBS market. I mean, it's
1: interesting yeah. that what you, it seems to me, and I have managed retail, but not game retail, but it seems to me that what a game store really needs to do nowadays is provide something more than just be a place where you can buy the product, mm-hmm. right? Because you can buy the products online, you can buy the products uh, on eBay. I mean, there's just so many different places where you can get products that you've got to, it's got to be more than just that. It's got to be, you know, um, the selection. Uh-huh. Uh, products that you choose to carry in your store, it's got to be uh, organized play events that you have in your store, or um, you know I know some places will have like computer networks that you can go to, and so. The stores that are very successful, in my view, are the ones who've really diversified and really brought some kind of experience that you can't get on Amazon.com. Yeah, and developing you know, a community store. or a series right. of communities. Right. and I mean, I've seen that in
0: some of the very good stores where you know they have their guys who come in and play Flames of War on Thursday nights. Right. And, you know, those guys play together every week. They have a you know a nice community of people. There's also role players, and in the store is kind of the hub around which those groups. Uh, right. You know, and
1: there's. The, a, a store that I keep kind of coming back to is not actually a gaming store, but there's a store um, in Capitol Hill here in Seattle on Broadway called Bailey & Coy Bookstore. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a tiny little bookstore, and surely there's all kinds of competition from Barnes & Noble and Borders and Amazon.com for this store. But every time I'm in that neighborhood, I go to that store because it's such a well-edited bookstore. Mm-hmm. You know The, the, the owners have put out all the right books you know on the tables and things and i can go into that store and just be sort of lost for an hour just looking at all the various books but i might go into a borders and want to get the hell out of there 20 minutes later because there's just too much yeah you know and and the internet is obviously there's just too much and so i think that you know a store that really sort of carefully looks at what is my audience going to want what are some new products that they don't know they want yet but because i know them very well i know they will i think that there's there's Obviously that's an increasingly important part of uh, being a great great retailer in this industry. So.
0: Well, hopefully it's a lesson that that got learned through experiencing the D twenty phenomena once. Right, right, right. Where, you know, initially people just brought in whatever with the D twenty logo and, you know, pretty soon it, you know, it should have been more clear to people like which companies were doing the really good stuff and which companies well, were. Well, I doing mean more.
1: I think I think that you've got it. I know that when D twenty first started coming out, I was like, "I'm going to collect everything that yeah. comes out." and yeah, a lot, and of, people I, and a lot of people said that, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. I'm guessing a lot of a lot of store managers thought that too, and distributors thought that too. And then there was this moment, you know, a year or so into it, where it's like, "Holy crap!" There's hundreds of products that are. There's no way. I remember uh, when I was editing Polyhedron magazine, which had become kind of the D twenty magazine for a while. Uh, at least one uh, issue of which featured uh, V for Victory by Chris Pramus, uh, a a World War II D20 game that that was a hell of a lot of fun to put together. But we would have kind of like, okay, you know, and here's a spread of information about all the products that are coming out this month, you Mm -hmm. know, from people like you guys, Mongoose, uh, Mystic Eye Games, you know, a lot of companies that aren't even really around anymore. Um, And I remember thinking that as kind of a bonus feature for Polyhedron, just the, the year after D20 came out, I'm like, I'm going to do an index or like a checklist of every D20 product that's been put out. And I and I signed a, a freelancer to it and everything. And he came back to me a couple of months later and said, this is impossible. There's too <laughs> many products. Yeah. And so I think all of us, you know, not just retailers or distributors, but gamers, just got sort of overexcited about this huge abundance of products that came out. And you would see... In many cases, you know, a really cool cover. And you'd say, oh, well, that's cool. And then you'd buy it and get it home and realize that it was crap. Or you would see, oh, well, such and such a name. This person used to run a very successful, you know, RPG company that I would buy from. And I know that guy's name, so that must be good. And then you'd get it home and it would be unedited crap, you yeah. know. Well, and someone who
0: hadn't bothered to learn the new rules.
1: Well, and I think there was a lot of arrogance there, too. I yeah. think that you saw, in particular, some folks who... Uh, from or sort of the TSR days so well we're TSR you know mm-hmm. y- y- and we can we don't need to deign to learn the new rules we're you know I'm blah 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 and then they just put out these books and distributors and retailers said well this is from blah 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 let's put this out yep. you know and they bought them and got stuck with them because they were crap
0: there was a Gamma trade shows 2002 maybe maybe it's 2001 but you know Almost every booth, uh, you know, had something d twenty. Even like war game companies, right. like oh, we do all these hardcore historical war games, right. and these d twenty modules, right. and there's run. tits on the
1: cover. <laughs> can, can we say tits on the Green Ronin podcast? I think that we can. All right. Yeah, I mean, it, everybody was trying to, to make money off of it, and I think it worked for a couple of months. You know, or maybe even more than that. Yeah, and it worked, uh, all right. <laughs> And, but it doesn't really work anymore just to throw that logo on the cover. You obviously got to do a lot more, uh, a lot. You've got to produce a product people actually want. And that's a trick. You can't just do the dwarf book. You know, anymore. <laughs> as excellent as Hammer and Helm: A Guide uh, to Dwarfs was by yeah, Green and Publishing. It's uh, you, you just—I don't feel that you can do that anymore.
0: It's very funny because Dwarf Book became shorthand right. for like you know the D20 Glut, right? And uh, I don't actually think there were more than three. Or there four weren't that them. many. There, yeah, uh, but... there was yours and the
1: Bad Axe games. Yeah, I Bad think Axe had a Dwarf ones. Book, and yeah. Sure had three or four. Uh, but yeah, there, that's a good point. There were—I think there were a lot of Elf books, though.
0: Yeah, our elf book came fairly late in the uh, in the process. Yeah, uh, Jesse Decker and Chris Thomason did that one.
1: Right. Um, Jesse did your dwarf book too, right? He did. Yeah. yeah,
0: that was good. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it was it was I th- I believe the first like big book that Jesse wrote. Um, and he talked about um, how it kind of helped foster this r- this real desire for him to do more design work. Right. You know, and then he ended up going back to wizards. Right. Right. And that's what he's doing. Yeah. Green Ronin, it's like
1: a and it's like a petri dish for the uh the game <laughs> industry. Yeah, that's
0: right. <laughs> um well, uh, I think we're going to wrap up here shortly uh, before we go uh we'll ask you a more whimsical question of uh what are you playing right now?
1: Uh well, right now I'm playing uh, my Age of Worms campaign. Oh, still. The old Age of Worms uh-huh. campaign which started uh before we published the first installment of uh, the Age of Worms in Dungeon 124. So it's about 27 months ago I started that campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been going pretty well uh, for a long time, but the problem is almost all the players work at Paizo. Uh-huh. I'm the DM. I'm the publisher of Paizo. So the campaign's one of the first things to get put on hold when there's two or more people who have some kind of freelance deadline that they've got. And so we don't play as, as frequently as I would like. We're, we're down to about... On a good month, we play twice a month, and on a bad month, we play about once. So my gaming has kind of taken a hit. Now, I am in the midst of assembling a Eldar army for 40K. Oh, uh, maybe we that should throw my, it down. Yeah, absolutely. My friends, uh, uh, Kyle, and, uh, Kyle Hunter and uh, Jason Bullman, uh they now are very into it. And so um, I had some old minis sitting around because I've been playing on and off uh, Warhammer 40K since... The rogue Trader days. And so I finally just said, okay, I'm doing it, you know, and now I'm painting up my guys. But I must say, not nearly as, as quickly as they would like me to paint. They've already <laughs> had about five games, and here I'm still, my guys don't even have arms yet. Uh, yeah, one of the good things. Paint their them? chests and stuff, and then I'll put on their arms. But so I've been doing that, and uh, just really been working a lot on writing
0: game stuff, even much more than playing it. What are you playing? Um, my regular. Supposed role playing group um, has similar difficulties to yours, oh, yeah. where we have uh, like three people from Green Runin, two people who work at Microsoft, um, and then uh, s- uh, someone I work with at Flying Lab as well. And uh, during the summertime, you know, it's conventions, right. everyone's traveling, you know, and so. That group, uh, we haven't even role-played in several months. We've been playing board games like Ticket to Ride instead. Yeah. Um, or We're Out of Town. Right. Um, then I have an, a, a slightly less regular group uh, where I've been playing Spirit of the Century, um, which has been fun. Nice. That's a That
1: looks game. fun. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, it's a pulp game by Evil Hat. And um, it's, uh, you know, pulp is one of those things that's like game designers love it. But, you know, oftentimes in the history of... Yeah gaming you know people do a pulp game because they love it and then it doesn't sell right um, but seemingly spirit century is doing quite well so good on evil what hat.
1: about hollow earth expeditions have you seen that
0: I have not I've been meaning to pick it up it's by it looks Seattle really Company. cool yeah. it looks
1: really cool the art is awesome and the you know I've been reading a lot of pulps lately uh-huh. you know um and I hope it's not just something game designers like, but I, I think it might maybe it is. <laughs> Historically so speaking We'll see if my Planet Stories line of pulp reprint novels are still around in a year yeah. and that'll be the ultimate test. But uh but yeah, that game really made me excited to kinda kill some Nazis and fight some dinosaurs.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And then on Thursday nights, uh get together with uh with Rick Ockburger, who used to work with us at Wizards, mm-hmm. uh works at Pokemon these days. And uh I guess working at Pokemon he really feels the need to get in his wargaming. So. Right. <laughs> so uh, we've been playing stuff like uh, Battle Lore um, and uh, Lord of the Rings Miniatures game we played about a month ago. Are
1: um, you playing a lot of World of Warcraft these days?
0: No. Not me <laughs> No, I mean, honestly, mean, apart from everything else, I just don't have time.
1: That's my main yeah. thing. I'm, I'm yeah. relatively certain, now, You know, seeing the uh, the other game designers who are all into that game like, Rock stars are into cocaine. You know, uh, <laughs> I'm relatively certain that that would, that game is awesome and fun and would just completely destroy my life. So I'm staying away from from that. I do play uh, some Guitar Hero and mm. some uh, some Rainbow Six Vegas on the Xbox 360 from time to time. But
0: uh, I uh, I finally acquired a copy of Call of Duty 3. Oh good! So I've been playing that. And,
1: uh, the other one that's good is BioShock. Oh, I've heard good things yeah, about BioShock. Just won that one last week, so that's fun.
0: In fact, I believe the last time I was online playing Call of Duty 3, Xbox told me that you were playing Bioshock. Oh,
1: yes, well, (laughs) (laughs) Xbox knows more about my gaming than I do. Uh,
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, it's always nice to actually play games because it's very easy you know once you get the game industry to always be like oh well I should be proofing or you right. know, I should be writing and you right. know, I don't have time to game it's like well this is why I got into this know. first I know, first
1: I know. It's every once in a while you need to look around and say you know I'm not gaming enough yeah I remember coming to uh, to Wizards in 99 and a lot of the a lot of the folks who kind of had come out of Wizards you know R&D or, or uh, their um customer service or organized play or whatever those guys were very actively engaged in playing but sort of some of the the real old guard TSR guys who were still there you know mm-hmm. um, one of them even told me oh, I haven't played D&D for 10 years you know and I was thinking what the <laughs> hell are you doing here you yeah. Know? yeah. so I never want to be that guy I never want to be the guy whose sole role playing game is or sole role playing character is publisher of a role playing company you know and who never plays oh I do actually also play Uh, Call of Cthulhu every once in a while James Jacobs runs a Call of Cthulhu game we're doing a old adventure called Shadows over Yogg-Sothoth or Shadows of Yogg-Sothoth I think it's called Um, and unfortunately my character just absolutely bit it last time we played so (laughs) I had to go through this whole thing where I was actually pissed about dying you know, because I usually play, I'm a DM, I usually run the games. Yeah. And so I'm like, who the hell are you to kill my character? You know, and then I just sort of sit back and go, Eric, you idiot. You know, this is Call of Cthulhu. Exactly. The whole point is to die. And so once I kind of figured out how to still play and have a lot of the knowledge that my character had acquired. Then I was okay. But I was like the guy who was taking notes, you know, I was like uh-huh. dutifully I had all the handouts in yeah. a folder, you know, I had a I printed out a picture of my guy's car from the internet, you know, I was really <laughs> into it. And then one unfair moon gun in the hands of a lizard folk or serpent man killed me dead and i was pissed well with you gotta be pathetic.
0: ready to, to die or go crazy it's
1: i know and i just wasn't ready you know i have to admit it i just was not ready it was <laughs> sad and then and then it just like a light i came up with a new character concept mm-hmm. and i was just like boom all right i'm good i'm mm-hmm. ready to play again and and but we haven't played yet unfortunately
0: yeah i'm hoping the uh the tuesday night group you know now that convention season's over um i don't have to go to um fort wayne this year for the alliance open house because our sales guy is going to do it and so i don't have any any trips that i need to worry about right. um and uh rob schwab has been working on the song of ice and fire rpg rules and uh they're approaching uh play testable state so we'll probably start a campaign to that cool yeah it should be cool because i love those books yeah it'd be a good time and that's probably also a game where dying Won't be that hard.
1: Yeah, you'll probably (laughs) die pretty easy in that.
0: Uh, Oh, you've got a very sympathetic character there. Right. Smoosh. Yeah, yeah. So that should be fun. Right. Well, all right. Uh, Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Well, hey, it's always a pleasure.
0: And uh, good luck with all your ventures.
1: And also to you.
0: Thank you. I'm going to wrap things up here with uh, episode three of the podcast. I'd like to thank Eric Mona for coming on and uh, having an interesting conversation with me. Uh, Next time I'll be discussing some of our upcoming releases, which include fairy Tale deluxe, hobby games, the 100 best paragons for mutants and masterminds and bleeding edge adventure. Number six, escape from Serenir. I'll see you next time. This podcast is copyright 2007, Green Living Publishing. Music by Bombscare, courtesy of the Podsafe Music Network.